Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Chef Mariana Livaditaki transports us to the Greek island of Crete. We get a masterclass in seafood, and we hear stories about her dad, a fisherman who once had a strange encounter with a magical fish. One night he was fishing, and then suddenly this massive, strange-shaped fish started very slowly coming towards him, but it was like six times his boat. So he was shocked, but as he is who he is, he was really curious. So he just turned his engine off and looked at it. Also coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll tells us about a new kind of nutrition label. And later we make Chef Angie Mars Chef Cheesecake. But first, it's my interview with author Dana Evans about her article, Who Will Save the Food Timeline? 
Dana, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So what is the Food Timeline? The Food Timeline is a website that was started in 1999 by a woman named Lynn Oliver. She's a research librarian from New Jersey who basically started a website that is the chronology of food as we know it. Um, It starts, I believe, in 17,000 BC. And it's basically every food you could possibly imagine, all the history of those foods, and some things that you've probably never even thought existed. If you go to the website... There's a vertical line and there are two columns. So what yes. are the two columns? The, on the left side, we have the beginning. So that's the kind of actual history of everything. And then the recipes on the right side give you recipes for everything from traditional pumpkin pie to hasty pudding to borscht to applesauce to ravioli, like everything that you could possibly imagine. Is this information stuff that Lynn found from old cookbooks, for example, or are these like Wikipedia where there's thousands of people actually posting entries that she's reviewing? So one of the amazing things about Food Timeline is that Lynn started the website purely by herself. So she was a reference librarian and in her spare time, so basically every hour outside of her work, she was building this website from people who are emailing her, asking her questions. So, you know, I have this recipe for my grandmother for a pound cake, but I wanted to know what the origins are. So she would go through primary sources and old menus and old leaflets and cookbooks, you know, through history and try to find the origins of these things. And she built out this timeline from all of that. So I guess the the thing about food history is that it's dodgy, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> like, let's take one of my favorite examples, Boston cream pie. She writes in the timeline that the French chef who was at the Parker House in Boston in the late 1800s invented the recipe. And, and then uh, Stella Parks also researched it and found that it was never on the menu at the Parker House. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was all fiction. Right. So I, I guess uh, she did the best she could with the resource she had, but... We all know that people claim credit for all sorts of things they didn't actually do. Right. But I think that that's what's so fun about the site is that Lynn really did such a good job of sort of presenting all angles and all sides. And she was pretty straight up. You you know, you can read some of these entries where she says, we think we know this about this one kind of food, but there's contested versions of the origin. So she really kind of gives you all the information that she had and that she found. Sometimes I think the food history is about half lies, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, Marshmallows come from France in the mid-19th century. Let's talk about that because I I read that listing and it said, the first method of manufacture involved the casting and molding of each marshmallow. (laughs) It just sounded like (laughs) a horrific Victorian or pre-Victorian method. Right. Yeah. No, I know. And I think that these are things that we kind of forget when we think about, you know, you get a bag of marshmallows at the store. It seems like a mass produced item. It's not really something you really consider. But then looking through her site, you really realize that, I mean, one of my favorite things from the site is about mozzarella sticks, that they were originally called pipe farces in medieval times. And I think it's you really start to connect those dots that through history, our foods have just evolved. They've not necessarily nothing is purely invented. So. Uh, Lynn passed. Uh, yes. So what, what's happening to the timeline now? So she passed in 2015, um, and the site stops, I think, in 2013. That was her last update. Um, but the, the sad thing is that she has this resource that obviously we don't want to disappear, and her family has been searching for someone who might want to take it over. And so when I wrote this story, published this story about it, they have gotten upwards of 80 responses from people who are interested in taking it over. You know, people from institutions, people from universities, a few celebrity chefs, a few sort of well-known writers who are really interested in taking it over. So they're going through the process now of kind of find someone who will really carry forth that legacy for her. So could you tell us uh, what Lynn was like? 
Yeah, so she was a picky eater, which is sort of one of the funny things about Lynn. Her process of learning all the history of these foods is she really tried to cook a lot of the recipes that she found from people um, to sort of build those images in her head. Um, but she really didn't like a lot of things. Um, one of the things she really respected, which I found super interesting, is she loved spam as an idea. She never ate it. She didn't like it. But she was obsessed with the idea that it was this really noble food. And so she had, in, you know, in her library, she has lots of ephemera and, and kind of little things that are that reference spam in her library um but she i think that she should be given a lot of credit not just because this resource is so astounding but because she spent all of her free time doing it so it was a real labor of love outside of her nine to five working the library she was putting together this resource at night and on the weekends and as her family often said on vacation as well does the food timeline tell us something about the history of food and its importance, increasing importance in the history of, you know, mankind. Um, you know, I remember a long time ago reading history, and it was always about the wars and the kings and the queens and everything else. But I think in the last 20 or 30 years, we've now begun to look at the everyday lives of real people. Right. Is this part of that trend, do you think? I think so. I mean, I think just in general, anything that helps us get in touch with who we once were, whether it's our ancestors or sort of connecting the dots geographically, um, I think it is one way that, especially as it's laid out on the food timeline, which is really in this very simplistic from the beginning of time until now, it really helps us connect to our entire history. And I think food is a really interesting way for people to enter that because everyone eats. It also points out that we're not that different than the Romans or the, exactly. the Babylonians or other people. <laughs> right, right. The, the grilled cheese sandwich has actually been around a long time. Right? right, exactly. And I think that that's why Lynn loved the site as well or loved doing the site because she really wanted people to make those connections. And so she made it really clear that that's what is happening. You know, it's interesting that I think back in the 90s, a book was published, The Food Chronology. Um, mm-hmm. That would have been the pre-internet version of the food timeline. Right, exactly. Right. And then the, then the internet comes around, that type of book becomes a living, breathing thing right. that gets updated daily and lives on in the future with a new curator. Right, right. And, and it can keep growing and growing, which I think that Lynn's motivation of answering people's questions and sort of building out this history of food, it really gives a lot of respect and attention to what we consider, you know, our family recipes, which I think that they deserve the import that the food timeline gives them. Dana, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I'm now going to have to spend the rest of my life on the food timeline. Thanks. (laughs) Same. Thank you so much for having me. That was writer Dana Evans. Her article for Eater is called Who Will Save the Food Timeline? Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, are you ready? I am looking forward to it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Where are you calling from? Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? So I was um, going through some old papers of my mother's, and I found a reference to something that uh, her family used to have on holidays back in the, when she was a child, so it would be the 1920s, 1930s, and it's a steamed cornmeal pudding. And it was served with turkey gravy over it, and it was sliced. She never made it for us, and so I don't know anything more about it, but I can't find any reference to a savory steamed cornmeal pudding anyplace. Where did your grandmother come from? So my grandmother was from Northern Ireland, but my mother was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and my grandmother married um, a man in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So that's where they live. Well, it it sounds like it's got sort of, you know, British-Irish roots. Well, They're all about steamed puddings. Yeah, I mean, you know, still today in London, dessert is puddings. They refer to as puddings. My point is that steaming a mixture of flour, milk, or some other liquid and other contents is just a standard recipe with thousands of variations. Right. When they got here in the early days, cornmeal flour was hard to get. The Midwest hadn't been opened up yet. Yeah. Flour was very expensive. 
wheat flour, so they use cornmeal. So it's very likely they steamed a corn mush of some kind, maybe throw some eggs in it to have it set up properly, steam it for uh-huh. two or three hours, and they would slice it. It was one of those universal recipes, and you could certainly substitute cornmeal for flour and make okay. a steamed cornmeal pudding versus a regular pudding, and it would be savory, sure. The weird thing is, though, I've never heard of a savory steamed pudding. Sure. You have? Well, yeah. If you go back in time, actually, they were all savory. Really? Yeah, because they were cooked in a stomach or they were cooked in other parts of the animal. The fact of the matter is they were all savory. It was a way of cooking lots of bits and pieces together at one time. And also, don't forget, they had boiled puddings because they just had a big vat of water, right? They didn't have ovens, so they would wrap it in something, a How cloth. do you know this? Um, I spoke to a woman who was an expert in Old English cookery about a year ago on the show. Wow. Amazing. You actually well, yeah. listened to her. I, I was fascinated. And so uh, <laughs> then, then the sweet puddings came along much later, like 19th century, but early days, it was a way of taking bits and pieces and leftovers and putting them together and cooking them in water so they'd hold together in a pudding. Oh, that's really great. What kind of template could Bonnie use to make this? It sounds like she, you want to make this, don't you? I do, I do. It's sort of like making, look, um, may I make an analogy? It's polenta, really. I mean, polenta, you cook it, it hardens up, you slice it. You have sliced polenta is a thing. It's been a thing for hundreds of years. So it's really not that different. This is exciting to hear. I've done my work today. I can go home. Yeah, you can. I'm very (laughs) impressed. Bye, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. Bye-bye. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josh from Merrimack, New Hampshire. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good. How can we help you? Uh, well, every day my mom has someone in my family uh, grind coffee beans in a hand-crank burger grinder yep. for coffee. Uh-huh. And we have an electric blade grinder, but my mom claims the even cut of the burger grinder improves the flavor of her coffee. Yep. Is there evidence to back that claim? I'll make this quick. She's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the blade grinder has those two blades, and it chops up the beans in sort of a regular sizes. So you have big chunks and you yeah. have very fine chunks, yeah. which is why you end up with mud at the bottom of your coffee. Right. You, so you don't get a clean cup of coffee. Burr grinder is going to give you an even grind and that'll give you a much cleaner, brighter cup of coffee. Yes. I mean, you yep. get because you get all that stuff at the bottom. I'm, and I have to say, I for years have used the blade grinder and I'm, I'm getting ready to turn around because it's just crazy. It's like Turkish coffee and you didn't impl- what, intend to have what? Turkish coffee. Oh, Sarah, well, hold on. What? You just said that the burr grinder is better. Yes. You get a lousy cup of coffee, and then you said, I still use a blade grinder. Well, you know, burr grinder is <laughs> more expensive if you get a good one, and, you know, I'm When's cheap. Your, when, when your birthday's coming up, all Yeah, right. it is. Oh, I'm going to tell it's you. It's 70 or 80 bucks, right, for a burr yes, grinder? Yes, exactly. Yeah, instead of 20. Exactly. Anyway, it's worth the money. Yes, I think so, Joshua. Yep. Sorry. Okay. Got to go for it. Yo, by the way, my mom listens to Milk Street, and she really respects your guys' opinion. Thank you for answering the question. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime with your greatest culinary mysteries. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tim from San Francisco. Tim, how can we help you? Well, I had a quick question about multiplying um, basically a rib recipe to maximize my oven space or my oven time. What I've done a couple times is braise some ribs for about three hours at about 250 degrees with any acid or liquid that I find in the fridge, apple juice, orange juice, soda. And then it usually takes about three hours and then I broil them with some sauces, whatever I want to put on it. But one time I tried to do like four racks of ribs and it seemed like it took forever till it was tender enough to actually throw on the grill. And I was curious if I wanted to do like six racks of ribs at one time instead of just like one so that I can vacuum seal it and put it in the freezer for another time, what should I change about the recipe? Well, was there any difference between when you cooked the three racks and the four racks, it was the same kitchen, the same oven, anything change? There are some pretty big changes, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. The is between, don't, don't tell well, us is, or anything, I was, Tim. <laughs> I was in a high altitude, actually, in Lake Tahoe. Oh. And so okay. I wasn't sure if that affected it or if it was the fact that I multiplied it no. by like four or 
six times what I usually do. You said you're braising these, so it's in a liquid, a little bit of liquid. And at different altitudes, water obviously boils at a lower temperature at a higher altitude because Mm -hmm. there's less ambient pressure. So regardless of how many ribs you were cooking, if you cook two ribs at sea level and two ribs at, let's say, a few thousand feet, it would take longer at altitude. Right. So altitude can slow your cooking by 20 or 30% if you're cooking in a liquid, like braising. It should not impact the dry roasting because the temperature of the air in the oven is not affected by altitude. But what about by putting maybe six cold racks of ribs in rather than just one yes, yes. cold rack of ribs? That will take a little more time because the heat of the oven will be absorbed by those cold ribs. But the oven's going to make that up pretty quickly because okay. uh, the thermostat goes on. It calls for more heat and brings it back up. If I did want to multiply then, I'd pretty much just do the same thing, and maybe it'll just take an extra hour. Yes. Yes. An extra hour would certainly do it. I agree. All right. I appreciate the advice. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's Mariana Levadataki, author of Achina. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly 
I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with London-based chef Mariana Levadataki. Her new book is called Aegean. Mariana, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited. It's a pleasure. Uh, you were born and raised in a small town in Crete. Are there really big towns in Crete or are most of the towns small? Let's start with that. Well, no, you know, they're they're big cities. I mean, I'm from Hanya, which is in the northwest. Iraklio is the biggest one. But even though they're big, they still feel quite small. You know, everyone knows each other. And um, yeah, you don't feel anything like what you feel in London, for example. <laughs> uh, your father, you talk about being a fisherman. You, you wrote... The size of the moon determines which fish you go after and what time of night you set off. Um, that sounds horribly romantic to me, but w- what was it really like uh, living in that kind of family? Um, I think, you know, what my dad did and still does to this day is absolutely amazing. He's one man on one small boat. There's no cover. He doesn't use a light because he thinks it pushes the fish away. So he's just in the middle of the sea, you know, in darkness. And I used to go and wake up my mum and like, I'd be, mum, please get up. We need to go to the harbour. We need to go to the harbour. And she'd say, Mariana come on, dad is fine. He's been doing this forever. I was like, get up, get up. And she would get up and we'd get in the car at three, four in the morning. (laughs) And I just want to see if I can see his tiny little, he had this tiny light. So um, I was scared for him a lot when I was young. Is fishing the way he fishes? One person, small boat, the basket with lines and hooks. Are there a lot of people still doing that, or is he one of the few people sticking to the, you know, the old ways of fishing? He's definitely one of the few nowadays. So um, the majority of people fishing obviously have uh, much, much bigger boats, and they have machinery, and you know, obviously, my dad doesn't agree with that way of fishing. I think what he does is special, and I think it's very much appreciated. My dad gets phone calls all the time, you know, to to kind of, can I come and get your fish, Lisandros? You know, did you go fishing last night? I need something for my family, or, you know, my child is sick. Have you got a fish for soup I can have? Because we used to have the restaurant, and now we don't. And now he sells everything at the fish market. One of the things that struck me about the recipes in your book is that you so very often say, cook the fish and serve it with lemon, olive oil, and parsley. You know, you're not putting sauces on things. You, it's, it's very simple because the ingredients are so terrific. Could you just talk about that approach to cooking? Yeah, um, I think I was taught cooking fish like this. So Imagine we ate fish about seven days a week. We would beg to have some meat or something else. And we had this seafood restaurant for many years, which is where I grew up. So at the restaurant, we had a six-meter charcoal grill. And the customer used to come to the front of the kitchen. They would pick the fish. It would go to the kitchen. It would be cleaned, salted and thrown on the charcoal grill. It would come off the grill, 
lemon juice, olive oil, parsley, and it would be served on big platters so no one would have their own fish and everyone would help themselves from the platter. And what I think that has done is has made me appreciate fish rather than, you know, changing what the flavour of a really good fresh piece of fish should taste like. The the fish stew, is it cacavia? Is how do you pronounce it? Cacavia. Cacavia. Okay, there we are. You want to just explain how you make it? Because it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean it's the simplest of soups. Um the important thing is that you have gelatinous fish because the actual soup has uh, nothing much so you get a pot that will fit your fish quite tightly cut a layer of potatoes quite thickly you put the fish on top of the potatoes I add uh, a little bit of fresh tomato a lot of really good olive oil so tons so we used to do this funny measure in the restaurant where I think it was one water glass of olive oil to three water glasses of water Um, and we had this specific glass that you know it was sacred you know it couldn't break and you know and um, you add the olive oil you add the water you add you make sure you've got enough salt um, and you place a lid on your pot and you put it over really really high heat you never open Um, You can see it's come to the boil because you see the steam um, and you shake your pot with the lid on. Um, When it starts boiling, you lower the heat, you continue to shake a little bit and you turn the heat off, you squeeze lots of fresh lemons, place the lid back on and you leave it for 15-20 minutes. If you've done everything right, when you go back... It almost looks like a jelly. Hmm. It's amazing. And it's it's the best medicine. Lots of olive oil and fish with the heads on, I assume, because you want the, the gelatin, yes, right? Absolutely. And then you know, if if you don't like fish with heads on, you know, you don't have to eat the heads. Right. I mean, I came from a family where we used to fight as to who will eat the head, and it was like, No, you had it yesterday. I'm having, no, 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 I'm having it today again. And it was just this constant fight as to who's going to eat the fish heads. We weren't interested in the tails. It's quite funny, actually. I think in the book you talked about one of your return trips to Crete and one of the first things you did was to find a jar of bottled sea urchins. I did that and I I actually opened the jar and put it in the where the coffee should go in the car and uh, I was driving to my dad's house so from the airport I go via the fish market on the way to my dad's house who's waiting me with loads of amazing fish he's cooked and yeah I stopped at the fish uh, manga I bought sea urchins and I couldn't wait to get to my dad's house which is about six minutes drive from where I was (laughs) I opened the jar and downed it while I was driving and laughing quite loudly because I couldn't believe I was doing this but it was so amazing like it's just the best flavor in the world for me they're just heaven I just shut my eyes on the first few mouthfuls because it's just so good (laughs) (laughs) um so there's some techniques in the book I really love and one of them is uh frying foods in oil that's been flavored with fresh rosemary yeah I think you know having flavors of really beautiful aromatic herbs in oils or in in waters that you're going to blanch something adds adds a lovely you know aroma and depth to to your dish and you know I have these dishes in the book as well this rosemary and vinegar sauce that we have in Greece with rabbit very much or with fish and it's funny because the fish we actually use in Greece for this dish is conger eels which are basically the 
fish that no one can sell. You don't want to catch eels. You know, they accident, like they they go on the hooks. They want the bait, they're hungry, and they get caught. You never go fishing for eels because they're just trouble. And they're a bit dangerous and naughty. That's how right. they always say, oh, they're just naughty. You know, and I'm like, well, they're not. They're quite dangerous. They're like a snake, you know, and they've got horrific teeth, like rows and rows of really sharp teeth. But they are delicious. So you've heard hundreds of stories, obviously, uh, from your father about fishing. Yeah. Are there one or two stories that stays with you? Um, I have heard to so many stories. And one is, um, I mean, in Crete, you know, we don't, we don't get very big fish. You know, there are dogfish what would look like sharks or you might get a whale because it's lost its path but you don't have big fish like that in the waters so one night he was fishing and then suddenly this massive strange shaped fish started very slowly coming towards him but it was like six times his boat so he was shocked but as he is who he is, he was really curious. So he just turned his engine off and looked at it. You know, I think I would have run away like swimming. <laughs> I don't know, you know, but he didn't. He doesn't know what that fish was. He's like, it was magic. It was shiny. It was in the night. It was like semi-glowing. He's like, I couldn't leave it. It was like a magnet. And I just think that's so beautiful. You know, mm. what creature was that? You know, maybe it just went say hello. So if you go back to Crete today, which you do, um, your father's still fishing, I gather. Are there other things that remain unchanged from when you were a child there? No, things change. Things change a lot, but... You know, you walk past the, the harbour and there are all the little boats and usually there's old men still sitting on the benches. And then you walk and you go past these really amazing kind of small caves just along the road and you go up the hill and down the hill and you get to the end of the road, which is where a seafood restaurant was. And it literally was at the end of the road. You wouldn't have passes by the only thing you would have is guests that knew where they were coming which was amazing mariana it's been an enormous pleasure uh, having you on milk street thank you so much thank you very much for inviting me i've loved it thank you That was Mariana Levadataki. Her new book is called Aegean, Recipes from the Mountains to the Sea. You know, I was struck by the photograph of Mariana and her father in her new book. Her father behind her rests his chin on her head, eyes half-closed, left arm around her collarbone, the two of them deeply connected. I'm told that the world has changed, that fishermen don't go out in small boats alone at night, and that the simple life just no longer exists. But that photo tells a different story. It's a Greek myth about the island of Crete, a place where daughters and fathers share a secret that to make time for the simple things is to invoke the magic of the past. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Chef Cheesecake with Black Pepper Graham Crust. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I don't know if you've met or know Angie Marr. She's the chef owner of the Beatrice Inn in the West Village in New York. And she's uh, all about meat, big meat, expensive meat, yes. too. But she has, for example, a steak that's aged for months in cheesecloth soaked in single malt whiskey. Amazing. She has a creme brulee that's cooked in marrow bones. She's full-fledged, 100% out there, committed to this. But one of the, the recipes we really love is a chev cheesecake because she's taking something common, we think we know, and making it uncommon, which is what she's good at. So let's talk about that, a chev cheesecake. 
It is. Angie does this with a lot of what she makes. She takes something that's really familiar and just kind of turns it on its head. And she's done that here with this cheesecake. It looks like a typical New York-style cheesecake, but it doesn't taste like it, nor is the texture similar to a New York-style cheesecake. She starts with the filling. It has the usual suspects of eggs and sugar and cream cheese, but she also adds chevre cheese, which is a goat cheese, very tangy in flavor, and then a little bit of creme fraiche. Again, that tanginess, but also a lighter texture. So the texture of this, once it's whipped up, is really nice and airy. The crust is an interesting little twist. It's a graham cracker crust, as you would expect in a cheesecake, but she adds a teaspoon of black pepper to it. So it has a little bit of savory, almost a little bit of heat to it to contrast all that richness of the cheese. And the problem with cheesecake, of course, is you have to cook it in a water bath, a bain-marie, which leaks and has all sorts of other problems. So do we have to go down that road here? No. So when we were making this cheesecake, we made it dozens of times. You know, it's a complicated thing to make, actually. But we really wanted to do it without the water bath. And we found this really cool recipe where you put the cheesecake in the oven at a high temperature for about 20 minutes. The top gets really nice and brown. Then you turn it off. Mm. Prop open the oven. Let it sit in there for about 10 minutes. That allows the oven to cool down a bit. Then you turn it back on at a low temperature so that the cheesecake can really cook through without any worry about curdling. And you get this beautiful texture. And please don't overcook your cheesecake. No. We recommend pulling it at 145 degrees, which is a little bit lower than most people recommend. It will continue to cook once you pull it out, but we found that prevented cracking on the top as well. So thank you to Angie Marr, uh, chef owner of the Beatrice Inn, a chef cheesecake with a pepper graham cracker crust and no water bath, which is very exciting. It's very exciting. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Chev Cheesecake with black pepper graham crust at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll explains a new way of thinking about nutrition labels. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Eileen from Rochester, New York. Hi, Eileen. How can we help you today? I have a question about making basil pesto in bulk so that you can keep it. Um, I've tried various things. I've tried freezing it. I've tried putting olive oil on it. I've tried blanching the basil, and I never get completely satisfactory results. And I get a lot of basil from my CSA share. I have an answer, but Sarah, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that the enemy of basil is oxygen, so it seems like the olive oil thing should work, just a little layer on top. Tell me what happens. Well, I put the layer on top, and then I go to use some, so I scrape off some of the olive oil, and then I put more olive oil on top. So either I don't cover it all, or I have to put so much in because I took a scoop of it out. It keeps diluting it. Do you also put plastic wrap right on top of it? No, I've not done that. Because that really helps, too. You just want to keep the air away from it. I've had gardens all my life, and I've grown lots of basil. I've tried to freeze it in ice cube trays. That was the thing I came down to. So I'd freeze it overnight in ice cube trays, pop them out, put them in big double wrap bags. But it's not nearly as good as the real deal. The real deal. Uh, well, the two problems. Most basil in the United States has very little flavor compared to Italy. They're bigger leaves and they're coarse and less flavorful. That's interesting. The little tiny guy. That makes yeah. me think about the little tiny basil. And also and the way you make is. it is very different in Italy because they start with the nuts and the garlic and they puree that. And then they'll add in some of the cheese. Then they'll add the basil really almost as the last thing and tons of it. I mean, the ratio is much basil, higher. Yeah, it's like almost all basil. And then just a little bit of oil. It's a fairly dry mixture. In any case, it's not going to be as good, but you know what? I, I use it in the winter and it's better than nothing. So I, I would say freeze in ice cube trays. So what else can I do to preserve the tons of basil that I get? That's a problem, too. Well, you know, one thing is if you have the roots on, a lot of time they'll give it to you with the roots yeah. on. I get it with the roots. Yeah. So if you, you can treat it like flowers. You put it with roots down in a glass of water and leave it outside. It hates the refrigerator. But it's only going to last two or three days. I know. This right. is a problem. I would make pesto and freeze it. and It won't it, be as good, but at least the, it will be a happy thing yeah. in February. And then, you know, when you make the pesto for freezing, use more oil than you normally would and more cheese and everything else. Well, Eileen, thank you for calling. Thanks for calling. Yes. Okay, take care. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Terry. Hi, Terry. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Warminster, Pennsylvania. Okay. I'm calling about making uh, dairy-free ice cream. And I've been doing a little bit of experimenting, either almond cashew blend or a walnut milk. They're the creamiest. I don't like coconut, so coconut milk is out. I'm trying to get as close to real ice cream as I can. I can tell you what I've tried, and if you have any suggestions after that, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead. All right, so I've tried nut butters. Peanuts, too strong a flavor, and cashew butter didn't make any difference. What I tried that has worked is egg and gelatin. It's kind of like a you know pudding texture. That's okay, and I've tried grinding flaxseed and chia seeds. That's pretty good, but I'm still wanting to get get it even better. Do you have any ideas? When you say get it even better, what's wrong with it, what you've been doing? Meaning what's wrong with the texture or the flavor? I can handle it okay. It's just icy. It has like, uh, you know, ice crystals in there. So I'd like to get it a little bit creamier. I mean, you want the smallest possible crystals to get the creamiest possible texture. The faster you can freeze it, the better off you are. Are you using an ice cream machine where you have to put the container in the freezer overnight? Right. Those are okay. The problem is, is your freezer, have you got a freezer thermometer? Yes, I do. And is it zero? Between zero and minus 20. Okay. The faster you freeze, the smaller the crystals, the smoother the ice cream. Once you take the ice cream out of the freezer, you need to get it into a container as fast as possible. So pre-chill that container and get it right in the freezer as soon as possible because some of that stuff starts to melt. That melted ice cream, when it refreezes, will have very large crystals. So the speed at which you go from freezing it in your machine to the freezer is also important. And then finally, okay. fat content. The more fat you have in the ice cream, the better off you are. 
Right. Sarah. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Terry. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're stuck in a cooking rut, give us a call. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Chris. It's Marcy calling in Montreal. And how can we help you? I'm a professional baker and I, I write cookbooks, but I've noticed over the years when you bake with buttermilk and some other books I've seen, they always say add the baking soda to the buttermilk first before you add it to the recipe. And I always sort of see that as watching the leavening disappear before my eyes right. before it even gets added to the recipe. I'm wondering about your take on that or why recipes would mention that technique. This is going to be a short call. Uh, I agree. I make buttermilk biscuits all the time, and you always add the baking powder or baking soda directly to the flour with any sugar or salt, Mm -hmm. and then the buttermilk is added after you cut the fat into the flour. So there's absolutely no need to add baking soda to buttermilk. Some older recipes sometimes had the leavener put into warm or hot water. I've wondered about that. My conclusion is that they did that to see if the leavener was active. That's exactly what um, I was thinking. To make sure that it's, it's actually still good. Oh, that's interesting. The other thing is the bicarbonate of soda, what they used back in the 1840s, that stuff, was pretty harsh and strong. And so if you lost some of the leavening power when you introduced it to hot water, that was probably okay. But there's never a need to add leavener to a hot liquid. I'm sure that that was it. It was sort of like when you proof yeast you know, the powdered yeast, and you have to proof it, and part of it is to make sure that it's still alive. Yeah, because I always sort of thought back in the day that the baking soda maybe was a little grainy or pebbly, and they maybe tried to dissolve it first before adding it. That could be, too. They had a lot of different chemicals they used as leavener, and some of it may have not been powdered fine, and it was strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very strong stuff. So, But today, always put the leavener in with the, the flour or the, the dry ingredients. Okay. Marcy, quick question. Mm-hmm. Tell us the name of your last cookbook. Actually, it's just in time for the fall. It's called The Newest Jewish Cookbook. And Good for you. you can get it through betterbaking.com, which is my site. But it's everything from what your grandmother used to make to a little bit more global things for the new season. Good Wonderful. for you. Congratulations. Yes, Marcy. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Well, Good thank question. You. Thank you both. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lauren. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm good. I'm calling from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Lauren, how can we help you? Well, I have a question about measuring ice water when you're making bread. I've been making bread for about the past year and trying a lot of different types. And when I've come to recipes for maybe like the Zatar bread or calzone dough, it calls for ice water to be measured. And that has kind of stumped me. Because I've wondered, do you measure out, say, one and a third cups of water with ice in it? Do you make ice water and then pour out one and a third cups of it? Do you measure the water and then add ice to it? What's the best way to do this for a Um, a dough recipe? The answer is B. You put ice in water, let it chill, and measure out the whatever you want. But I have a question Why are you you using using ice ice water water for bread? I'm like totally baffled. Is this a yeast bread? No, it's in flatbread dough. Oh, calzone. Well, calzone dough has yeast. It in has it. yeast in it. Well, it calls for it in the recipe. It says yeah. one and a third cups ice water. What's the rest of the recipe? It's got yeast, ice water, maybe some honey in it, salt, bread flour. It's pretty simple, and, and a then, lot of times you do it in a food processor. Oh, I think the reason is because it'll heat up the dough in a food processor. Okay. And so the ice water, I think, the water's cold, is to make sure the dough doesn't get too hot to kill off the yeast. I think that's what's going on. Now that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Put ice and water together, and then you measure the water out of that right. cup. But if you weren't using a food processor, you wouldn't use ice water. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, that was easy. Yes. Lauren, All take right. care. <laughs> yeah, you too. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hello, my name is Kristen and I live in Dubuque, Iowa. After failing to get my Instapot to seal on two separate occasions, my husband realized I had created a meat dam. If you layer ingredients in the pot, but create a top layer of meat without spaces, steam cannot build to pressure. 
Be sure that the layer of meat has some spaces between pieces and your pot will get to pressure more reliably. Good eating! If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's time to hear from Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Carroll, uh, what's on your mind this week? Well, I thought we would talk about uh, new ways to put labels on food so that people might have a better understanding about how many calories they're consuming and whether that actually makes a difference. Is this in your fantasy world of product labeling, or is this something that might actually happen? It's funny because I'm not a big labeling proponent to begin with. I mean, you know, there's been a real push, for instance, to have calorie counts put on menus. Um, But I've written a number of times the evidence for that is shockingly thin. Uh, It turns out that most people don't change how much they're eating when they see calorie counts on menus. And sometimes it even backfires where people will see how many calories, for instance, might be in a Big Mac and then say, oh, my gosh, that's not as many as I thought and wind up actually (laughs) eating more. So... (laughs) In general, menu calorie counts don't work so well, but there was a study not too long ago that tried instead using a different type of nutrition label uh, just being sold on food. They call it the physical activity calorie equivalent or PACE, where instead of you know trying to put all the numbers and percentages right. of different nutrients, instead they actually say how many minutes of exercise you would actually need to get rid of it. So for instance, huh. a small chocolate bar could be you know, listed as 42 minutes of walking or 22 minutes of running instead of talking about the actual number of calories. So, you know, I have a pet peeve, which is serving size. You know, in granola, for example, you know, it'll say a quarter cup, right. you know, is 180 calories. I'm going like a quarter cup. That's like that's that's my bowl of cereal. I don't think so. So uh, yeah. or a bag of potato chips, you know, eight servings. Uh, no, how about two? Um, so I think that's where they hide a lot of this is is how much is a serving, right? I totally agree with you. In fact, it's like cereal is such a good example because nobody gets out a measuring cup when no. they're pouring a bowl of cereal. It's just filling the bowl, and of course, bowls just seem to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that is absolutely part of the problem. This is also part of the problem where we see in in, uh, in restaurants as well, is that it assumes that every time, you know, a chef prepares the meal, they use exactly the same amounts um, or that they somehow are measuring it. In fact, they've done studies where they have taken food from restaurants and then taken it to the lab to see if the calorie counts right. and the labels that what you see on the menu actually match up with what people are ordering. And they're often, they're often significantly wrong by one to 200 calories and often in the wrong direction that they rarely are overestimating, but they often underestimate how many calories it is. But I, but I'd agree with you in general. Is there anything in the last 10 or 20 years, any study that has revealed something that does in fact work? in terms of losing weight and keeping it off in terms of labeling or anything else, any program? So interestingly enough, there, there have been some studies on how food can be presented in restaurants that, that has some small evidence that it would work. For instance, if we make the default option something healthier, people will choose it more often. So if, if the Happy Meal automatically comes with fruit, unless you request French fries, people actually will often take the fruit more often than you might think. Is there anything in uh, the world of smoking and cigarettes which rolls over into the consumption of food? Is it just, I think in that case, it was price, really. That was the thing when all of a sudden... Taxes. Yeah, taxes. Cigarette taxes work. (laughs) Absolutely. If you make people pay more money, they actually smoke less. And, you know, there's some emerging data that it might... It might work with, you know, some sodas or foods as well. Um, certainly, we've seen a number of places try sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. Right. Certainly, there are things that we could do with public policy uh, that would change perhaps how people might make food choices. Another way is, you know, we subsidize so many unhealthy foods, be it sugar or, or, or other foods, instead of trying to subsidize healthy foods. And by changing the way that we we incentivize people to buy different foods, we probably could see a big difference. But unfortunately, that's not how we do food policy in the United States. But at the end of the day, obesity, the line is, you know, keeps growing and the trend is clear. Is there any sense in the next 10 or 20 years that that's going to level off uh, and we'll start seeing a downward trend or a stabilization or not? 
I wish I could be optimistic about this, but I'm going to say no. Unfortunately, uh, you know, even a couple years ago, there, there was a belief that obesity in kids had leveled off or even dropped in a few places, and it made huge news. And then a couple years later, they realized it was actually an artifact in the data that was somewhat a mistake, and in fact, <laughs> everything has just proceeded to get worse. Uh -huh. And we've been trying to fix this with small solutions. You know, maybe if we provide a workshop in a school or, you know, try to get small changes that we can have big difference, we, it's not happening. There are many different ways that we could use big levers like taxes, smaller levers, like the food that we often like provide to people, school lunches, what actually gets served in school. There are many, many levers that we could try to use to get a handle on this. And unfortunately, we don't do much at all. Well, Dr. Carroll, thank you. Uh, despite the trends and the, and the statistics, I still remain ever hopeful. We'll have you back in five years. You tell me everything's better. Ah, I hope so. Okay, take care. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm -hmm.